This is Your Morning Basket, where we help you bring truth, goodness, and beauty to your homeschool day. Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 75 and a new season of the Your Morning Basket podcast. I am so happy that you're joining me here today. I'm Pam Barnhill, your host, and it's great to be back after our little summer hiatus. So this week on the podcast, we are joined by Rhea Berg. Now, Rhea is a homeschooling mom of six, and she is also the owner of Beautiful Feet Books. Rhea loves literature. She loves literature. She loves books, and she loves teaching history through story. And that's what we're going to be talking about on today's episode of the podcast. We talk a little bit about where this passion for children's books came from for Rhea and also some of the challenges that homeschool families face when they're teaching history and about how we can use story and why we would want to use story to teach history in our homeschools. It's a fascinating conversation, and I hope you enjoy it right after this word from our sponsor. Today's episode of the podcast is brought to you by my guide of five solutions for better homeschool mornings. Now, this is a quick, actionable little PDF guide that you can come download. And it's all about how to get your day off to a better start and stopping those morning struggles that sometimes pop up in our homeschools before they even begin. So in the guide, I will show you how your smartphone can actually be your biggest help. Yes, help in getting your day started well. Also, my number one secret sauce tip to getting everyone started with the school day with no yelling or whining. We'll also talk about the subject you should never ever do first in your homeschool day and why. And a quick and easy way to save a day that is starting to go off the rails. And then finally, some learning tips that even your toughest students will enjoy. So it's a very short, actionable little PDF guide, and you can get it by going to pambarnhill.com slash better. Get your free guide by going to pambarnhill.com slash better. And now on with the podcast. Rhea Berg is a veteran homeschool mom of six with a genuine love of children's literature. Inspired by Susan Schaefer Macaulay's book, For the Children's Sake, Rhea set out to create a living books approach to teaching history. She and her husband, Russell, founded Beautiful Feet Books, which has been republishing classic and historical children's literature for over 30 years. In addition, she publishes a series of history through literature teacher guides that support parents in teaching history, geography, literature, and social studies using award-winning classic books. Rhea holds a bachelor's degree in English from Simmons College and in 2006 earned a master's degree in children's literature at the Center for the Study of Children's Literature in Boston. She now speaks around the country on the joys of discovering history through literature. Rhea, welcome to the program. Thank you, Pam. Thank you for having me. 
Well, it is so wonderful to have you here. And I think I want to get started by having you tell us a little bit about your family and your homeschooling years, because I know you're not homeschooling anymore, but you have uh, you have quite a bit of experience there. <laughs> Thank you. Well, I do. I do. And I, um, I think homeschool, I was really attracted to homeschooling, as you mentioned, after I read For the Children's Sake by Susan Schaefer Macaulay. Um, I came from a dysfunctional home with a lot of brokenness, alcoholism. And I knew that when I had a family, I wanted things to look differently in my family. And so one of the things that I felt like homeschooling could afford was just the opportunity to spend a lot of time with my children and really get to know them and know what made them tick and um, and spend time learning together. So I really approached homeschooling as um, something that was going to be mutually beneficial to all of us. I didn't I didn't go into it really with the concept of a teacher. I went into it with the concept of just sort of adventuring together and having this experience of learning together. I love that so much. <laughs> and, you know, I say that like one of the secrets of homeschooling that people don't, I don't think moms realize it until they get into it a lot of times is that uh, really, I think a lot of moms who homeschool wanted to continue their own education. Yes. You know, felt like they missed out on something and they wanted to learn more. And you probably don't even think about it necessarily going into it. It sounds like you did. But um, I, I think a lot of moms are surprised by it. One day they wake up and they're like, wow, I love this so much. And the reason I love it is because I'm getting to learn right alongside my kids. Yeah. And I think I felt like I got so much out of it. And probably because you have a little bit more experience than your children. You've seen life a little bit um, more in depth by the time you start having children. And so I think you just bring that breadth of experience uh, to your, you know, to the times when you're reading books together. I mean, that's why, you know, all of us as moms, we're, we're crying at the end of books and our children are staring at us like we're crazy. But <laughs> it's because we've just experienced life in a way that they haven't yet. But, um, but I remember as a young mom, we, um, we lived in this, just this magical house that, um, my husband's boss, he worked at a, um, like a home improvement center and, um, it was in a small town in California and he had this beautiful Queen Anne Victorian mm. that was just sitting vacant. And he invited us when we, had, we just had our first and we were expecting our second. He invited us to live in his house and just caretake it. So we had this amazing experience of living there rent-free for 15 years and being able to save money and all that. But in this house, which was built in 1903, there was an entire set of the books of knowledge. I don't know if you've ever seen them. They're leather bound. I think they probably came out about the turn of the century. Mm -hmm. And they're just beautiful books full of history and nature studies and science and geography and, you know, and, and different um, aspects of social studies, you know, different cultures. And, and um, I just remember looking at those books as a young mother and thinking, oh, I just want to share all this stuff with my children. And how can I ever do that? It's too much, you know? And at that time, I didn't have any clue I was going to be homeschooling because I hadn't read for the children's sake yet. Mm -hmm. But I just remember that moment in time because it was that feeling of, oh, I just 
want to be able to have the kind of time where we could actually sit and read these kinds of books together. And, and so when I read For the Children's Sake, I, I just immediately realized, wow, this is a way that I could do that. So it was, it was kind of born out of that passion of just wanting to have those magical moments of experiencing books together with my children and having that richness of the literature really be part of our lives. Oh, wow. I love that. I love that. And you're right. I mean, if, you know, when we do send our kids off to school, which you didn't and I didn't, but that was part of the thing for me was if I send them off, we won't have time to do all the things that I want to do with them. So yeah, yeah really. Yeah, I guess it's a little bit selfish in one way, but <laughs> a, little bit, a little bit, but I think they benefit from it. So, yeah, uh, yeah. you know, mine are not complaining anyway. <laughs> right. Well, and I do have to, you know, full disclosure here, you know, we have um, six children. So obviously none of them are children anymore. They're all adults, but our youngest is 20 and our oldest just turned 40. So we have quite a, quite a span there, but mm-hmm. But I, um, I honestly did pretty much everything that kind of falls under the umbrella of homeschooling or actually under the umbrella of education with my children. Um, I've done charter schools. I've done strict, pure, 100% homeschooling. I've hired teachers and had them come into my home and tutor my kids. I've sent them to public school. I've um, sent them to private school. So I've done everything because every child is different and every student needs different things at different seasons. And then there's always us too. Sometimes we need something different in a different season of our lives too. So um, I am very passionate about homeschooling, but I am not religious about it. Let's put it that way. Right. Well, and you've made it work for your family, you know, for the different seasons of your life. And, um, And I think that's something that I hear so much from moms who are kind of on the other side of this journey. Yes. you know, never say never. Right. You, know, you never know what, what you're going to end up with. You know, I'm, I'm thinking ahead and I have one who's about three years younger than everybody else in the house and he's a boy and, you know, mm-hmm. where is he going to end up? We don't know. Right. So leaving all of those options open, I think is very smart. And it's interesting that you mentioned the youngest boy too, because that was a situation in my house. I had my, our youngest biological was a boy and then we adopted um, two girls from Ukraine, but he was 15 when we adopted. So he, you know, he went from being the youngest child to the middle child and then he became the oldest child when all his siblings went off to college. Right. So he's actually the most well-rounded of all of our kids. <laughs> he, he's done it all. <laughs> he's done it all. He's seen it all. But he was home, you know, with these two little ones and, um, you know, both girls and, and he was really kind of going a little bit stir crazy and he wanted to play sports. Yeah, And so it wasn't fair to keep him at home when we were trying to adjust to, you know, two new children joining the family and, and then trying to homeschool him too. It just, it wasn't fair to him. So he went to a small private school where he could play sports and that was the perfect option for us at that time and that season in our life. Yeah. Yeah. I think keeping those options open and never say never. Uh, it's, I mean, that's certainly the way I go at it. And so I think that's something that, uh, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. That's, that's the smart yeah. thing to do for your family. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Well, you obviously have a passion for books. You were telling me about the set of books that you had found in your home. Have you always had a passion for children's literature before you were a mom, or did you kind of grow into that after your kids came along? You know, I I didn't really have much of a passion for children's literature as a young person because I, I wasn't read to as a child, but I and we didn't have a lot of books in the house, but I do remember we had a leather-bound book of poetry that was probably from the 19th century. It was a very old book, and you know it was those parchment kind of pages, and it was sort of precious. I don't know why we had it, but um, I just remember falling in love as a child with the power of the words in that book. And I would take that book to bed with me with a flashlight. It was way beyond me intellectually Mm -hmm. because this was, you know, this was English poetry from, you know, from the 19th century. But there was something about the magic of the words that I totally fell in love with at that moment. And that really never left me. But then it was really my conversion to Christ when I was 21 that changed everything for me as far as literature because I started becoming a real voracious reader at that point. And um, when my husband and I married, we didn't have television. We just made the decision not to have television in our home. And so we just filled in all that time with reading. And we read books together, and we read books separately, and we talked about books. And books really became our life at that time as newlyweds. And that was a, a real turning point. And so then when we started having children, then, of course, immediately that was... I, you know, I was reading to them from the time they were, you know, babies, you mm-hmm. know, all the way, all the way through till they went off to college. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah. So, and that's when I really, really fell in love with children's books. I had gotten uh, Elizabeth Wilson's books, Children Love and Gladys Hunt's a Honey for a Child's Heart. And I just devoured those books. They were my Bibles and I took them to the library with me to guide me into, you know, this world of books that I had no real prior knowledge of. So that was a really fun adventure because then I was discovering these wonderful authors that I loved and my children loved them. And we were, we were enjoying all that together. So that was kind of really where it began. So you, you developed this love for books from reading to your kids and you're homeschooling them. And so how does that turn into an entire company, Beautiful Feet Books? (laughs) Oh, that's a funny story. I mean, it it was never intended to become the thing that it did, but I just started finding all of these wonderful books. And then I thought, you know, a lot of people have Tupperware parties or a lot of people sell, you know, I don't know, what what else did people sell in Amway or or things like that? And I Mm -hmm. thought... I could have a little cottage industry and, you know, because we were pretty poor and I could make some money selling children's books. (laughs) And so I never did end up doing the Tupperware party sort of model. But what happened was I just started ordering these books for our personal use. And then we'd get so excited about them. I share them with my friends and they would want to have them. And and that was just sort of that, that was kind of the genesis of it. And then it sort of snowballed out and I was invited to do um, a Chia conference, which was a Christian Home Educators Association conference at, used to be at the Disneyland Hotel in the old days. 
And I, I had all these books that I had been collecting, the Dolaire books and the Genevieve Foster books and the children's classics. And I thought, well, why not? I'll just try it and see what happens. And it obviously really struck um, a nerve because you know, the books that I brought down to that conference just really flew off the table. And, and obviously, people were falling in love with them, too. And so, so at that point, I started putting the books together to actually create, uh, you know, the ability to teach history through literature, because Mm -hmm. I was doing it myself, and I wasn't doing it in any sort of organized way, I would just sort of put the books in order chronologically. And, um, and once I did that, you know, people were saying, well, can't you just write it down so that I can do that too? (laughs) So anyway, so that's how the study guide was born. And I was, you know, we bought our first computer and I started, you know, tapping out study guides on an old, you know, Mac Apple (laughs) computer when they were still those, you know, big things on your desk. And then we were printing them off a home printer and binding them by hand with a spiral binder. And that was how the study guide got bo- was born. Um, wow. Like over 30 years ago. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. So, yeah. It's come light years. From <laughs> I, I would be very embarrassed if anyone was to see any of those early renditions of my study guide. Oh, there are probably <laughs> some of them still floating around. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. I, I imagine. I, I hope none of the spiral bound ones are still out there. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, and so you, you created this way to help families uh, teach history in a way that, you know, allows them to connect kids with story. This is one of the things when you, when you hear people talk about beautiful feet books, that's what I hear so much from families is, you know, my kids just really love the books. They really love the stories. So what are some of the challenges that you feel homeschool families face when they're teaching history? Well, I think like most of us, you know, I found out that I sort of fell in love with history, like I said, after I became a Christian and I started reading like the lives of like Fox's Book of Martyrs and these old Christian classics. And um, and so I started falling in love with history at that time in my life. But my um, my experience of studying history in school was probably like most people. Other than when I was in college, I had a history, a U.S. history professor that I was totally in love with. <laughs> that can make you interested in history. <laughs> but, um, but I'm thinking Indiana Jones anyway. here with the. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh, yes. He was just so handsome and he was so passionate about history. And I just remember sitting in this class and just like drooling. But anyway, um, <laughs> but. <laughs> But I found out that the way that most of us learn history through through textbooks is not conducive to really cultivating a love for history. Mm-hmm. And so when I started reading these children's like historical biographies, and they were so, you know, enthralling, and they were so interesting, and there was adventure in them, and there was good characterization in them, you saw your historical character grow over the period of the biography. And, and so the difference between learning about a historical character through reading a biography and reading a historical textbook where they may be mentioned, you know, in a couple of paragraphs. It's just, it's a world apart. And I, I love what uh, David McCullough says because he, you know, he won the Pulitzer for his book, John Adams. Have you read it? 
I have not. Now, I, I watched the oh. miniseries that it was based on, but I haven't read the book. Yes. Oh, my gosh. Well, you're in for a treat because okay. that is such a phenomenal book because he he really does for the American Revolution what you know what literature can do because it is it's a work of literature it's a work of art and the way John Adams is presented in that Pulitzer Prize winning book is so extraordinary but after he won the Pulitzer he was he was talking about how and why knowing history is so important. But he said there's no secret to teaching history or to making history interesting. And actually, he quotes from another historian here, Barbara Tushman, who said in two words, tell stories. And mm. that's what history is. And, and then Ian e. Forrester, the great novelist, Howard's End and Room with a View, said, here's what it means to tell a story. If I say to you, the king died and then the queen died. That's a sequence of events. That's history, basically. But if I say to you, the king died and then the queen died of grief, that's a story. That's human. That calls for empathy on the part of the reader or the listener. And that's what story does for us when we're talking about historical study. Because suddenly you're not just looking at a series of events but you're looking at human people and you're looking at the things that made them passionate and the things that they were pursuing and the heartache and the tragedy that they suffered in their lives and how those things formed them. So I, I feel like that's why it's so good to teach um, history from a literature perspective. Yeah. And I've heard you talk before about this empathy because we're not just teaching our kids empathy for things or people from the past, but yeah. by teaching through story and by uh, them developing this empathy for what they're hearing, they're also going to then translate it to today and people yes. now. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, and that's really been proven. I mean, there's there's no question that a lot of how we learn empathy is vicariously. And I can tell you for a fact that nobody learned empathy through reading a history textbook. <laughs> I mean, it just doesn't happen because there's no opportunity to identify with a character and their struggles and what they've been through. And so, um, so cultivating empathy is really important to me. It's at the top of my list when I'm talking about teaching you know, history through literature, because we live in a society that's becoming measurably less and less empathetic. And that's partly a result of our addiction to social media and the way that devices have interrupted relationship. And not that devices can't be helpful for relationship, but for the most part, the effect at this point is, is proving to be pretty negative. And so there's, it's really important that we are intentional about how we're cultivating empathy in our children. And I mean, there's just so many books that do that so well. And, and, and it's so nice to do it through a book with your children because you're not having to preach at them. Right. You're not having to you know, sit, sit them down and say, now you listen to me. You know, here's why you need to be you know, kind. <laughs> you know? It's just like they're learning these things through stories. And, 
that's getting in their heart and it's getting in their soul and it's making them who they are. Yeah. Yeah. Well, if, if we have a mom who's interested in this idea, she's like, oh, I've never thought about this before. We've always just, you know, pulled out a textbook with a number on it. And, mm-hmm. and I'm going to say that one of the other beautiful things about teaching history in this method is that you are able to combine your children to do it. Yes, uh, absolutely. And so you're not having to pull out a, a book with a third grade on it or a fifth grade on it and everybody goes their separate ways. They're, you know, you're able to learn yes. together. But kind of practically, what can it look like to use kind of this uh, living books approach to history? Well, I think um, our the guides that we published have really been designed to make it user friendly for your average mom, and and really, I mean, the, we understand that many many families are coming to the study of history with a lot of trepidation. They hated history in school. The, I mean, almost more than math. <laughs> <laughs> And, it isn't so. <laughs> and so when, you know, they're thinking about having to teach history to their children, they're just thinking about, oh my gosh, all those dry dates and times and places. We've got to learn all that stuff. I've got to learn that all over again with my kids. So I think people that are using a living books approach to history are pleasantly surprised that, that suddenly they're falling in love with history right along with their children. So I think having a good guide or a good mentor is really important. And that's what we've tried to provide in our beautiful feet books guides are really good mentors. We put like hundreds and hundreds of hours of research into those so that we're trying to sift out the things that aren't that great. And we're, we're trying to really provide a chronological and comprehensive study of the period. And it's when you're doing um, say medieval studies through literature, you just have the opportunity to read all kinds of books with your children that you would probably never pick up if you weren't studying the middle ages. So you're going to be reading King Arthur. Most people never read King Arthur. You're going to be reading um, Robin Hood. Most people never read Robin Hood. You're going to be reading um, The Door in the Wall. You're going to be reading, oh my goodness, Shakespeare and so many authors that, you know, you just wouldn't normally read those things with your children if they're just in a typical, you know, course of curriculum. Yeah. So I feel like that's such a beautiful advantage is um, a lot of us are given the opportunity to go back and make up for gaps in our own education and, um, and, and have the opportunity to read some things that we've never read and enjoy those. Yeah. Um, actually, I'm sitting here ticking all those off. I've read all of those. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. That's awesome. <laughs> and because we were studying medieval history. <laughs> yes, absolutely. That's great. So much well, fun. I think it's kind of fun to think, well, it's not fun to think about, but I think it's intriguing to think about that, you know, Shakespeare wrote some of his major tragedies like Romeo and Juliet and Macbeth and Hamlet when he was in quarantine, I, I think he was in quarantine for about two years because of the plague in London. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so it's, it's, it's interesting to think about how this kind of sequestering down has been the genesis of a lot of the world's greatest literature. I mean, Cervantes wrote Don Quixote when he was imprisoned. And John Bunyan wrote Pilgrim's Progress when he was in jail. So I think it's, it's interesting to look at how um, times of 
real stress and trial and trauma and tribulation can be really creative times as well as, you know, difficult times. A lot of beauty comes out of difficulty. Right, right. And once again, going back to those feelings of empathy. So Mm -hmm, exactly. So many things there. Well, let's talk a little bit about the mom who's like, well, you know what? This is all fine and good when your oldest is in third or fourth grade. But hey, mm-hmm. I've got kids who are in middle school and I've got kids who are in high school and we've got to get serious now. Yeah. Can this approach be used for those older grades? Yes, absolutely. And our history programs that are for junior high and high school are they're rigorous programs in the sense that students will read a lot of literature. But you're just killing so many birds with one stone when you're studying history through literature, because not only are you studying history, but you're also studying the great works of history or the great works of literature that came out of those periods. So, you know, when we're, when we're doing, um, you know, modern history with a high school student, we're reading The Jungle, we're reading To Kill a Mockingbird, we're reading the Albert Marin books, which are some of the best um, historical books for young people because Albert Marin tells history in the form of story. And, um, and those books are, they're a way to have an, a lens into culture that you don't get from reading, you know, a typical, a typical textbooks. I, I mean, um, I love what Neil Postman said. He, um, he wrote the, the book, The End of Education, and he was really, really concerned about what had happened in education really in the 1950s and 1960s when he was a professor at Yale and he was seeing, you know, students coming in to university that had so little historical background. They just really didn't know history and they didn't understand the rudiments of what democracy is. They hadn't been schooled in these things like children were a hundred years ago. And so he really became quite a spokesperson for getting rid of textbooks in um, schools. And he said about textbooks that, that they're actually enemies of education, instruments for promoting dogmatism and trivial learning. Mm. So when you think about that, Um, it's really true because as we all know, when we're studying history from a textbook, we are learning that information to pass the test on Friday. And then as soon as we pass the test on Friday, it's gone. We don't retain it. And it's that trivial learning. It's being able to grasp some facts and some dates and be able to demonstrate that on a quiz. And that is what learning history was reduced to. So the other thing that I think that is important that Neil Postman said is that because textbooks are they the way they are, they're just concerned with presenting the facts of the case as if there can be no disputing them, as if they're fixed and immutable. And still worse, there's no clue given as to who claimed these are the facts of the case or how it, in quotes, discovered these facts. So there's, but but I really like this. There is no sense of the frailty or ambiguity of human judgment, no hint of the possibilities of error. Knowledge is presented as a commodity to be acquired, never as a human struggle to understand, to overcome falsity, and to stumble toward truth. 
Mm-hmm. And I think that's really powerful when we think about the way we've been presented with history. It's never given as though it is to be a quest for truth. It's to be a quest for what really happened. What were the true causes of the the genocide of Rwanda? What were the true causes and roots of racism in the American South? And when we read books like Roll of Thunder, Hear My Cry by Mildred Taylor or To Kill a Mockingbird, we suddenly, our eyes are open to what the true roots of that type of racism is. And that's what we want our children to understand. There are no easy answers for any of these questions and these um, injustices that are so part of our culture. And so if they're only learning about these important issues in human history through a textbook, they're never given the opportunity to really dive deep and really explore these things from the, the perspective of, say, justice or the perspective of empathy and the basic human experience. So that's another thing. So I think for parents that are coming into it that are feeling inadequate and overwhelmed, I think all of us do. I don't think I ever spent an entire homeschooling day, and I homeschooled for 32 years, (laughs) feeling adequate to the task. But um, there are good guides out there now if you want to teach history this way, And, um, and, and you can do it, and your children will thank you for it. I remember um, one of the stories that I like to share is we had um, a family that were, they were using uh, living books all through their homeschooling experience. And then, you know, the homeschooling movement got hit like a tsunami by um, this very um, new and novel stress on academic excellence and, um, and there was nothing wrong with um, pursuing academic excellence, but it was through a method and a methodology that was really not life-giving to most people, especially most mothers. And it really impacted the homeschooling movement in a negative way. And this woman was trying to stand firm on her her stance that living books were the most important thing for her. They were a core value of her experience. And they were saying, well, but what are you teaching for this? And what are you teaching for that? And how are you doing rhetoric? And how are you doing, and so on and so forth. And she just said, well, we read good books. And that was her answer. We read good books. And so it was very interesting because her son, her oldest son, was accepted to West Point. Mm. And her friend's kids all got so burnt out on education by high school that they didn't go on to college. And, um, and so, I mean, this is obviously very anecdotal, but the, the, the point of the story is that when her son went off to West Point, basic training was really difficult for him. And it was, you know, it's a foreign environment. Everything in there is designed to break you, you know, to break you in order to make you. I understand that. But, mm-hmm. but you know, the whole military mindset and all is, um, is difficult for a fine young man that's, you know, coming out of a loving home and uh, is not used to that kind of treatment. And, you know, he would be um, a little bit depressed at times when he would talk to his mom. And, 
she'd say, well, hon, are you going to make it? Are you okay? And he goes, yeah, mom, I'm going to be just fine because whenever I get really down, I just read good books. Hmm. And it was just a powerful testament to the fact that that was what she raised him on and he knew where to go when he was really struggling. Yeah. And, and I think that's an important um, thing to remember right now too when we're going through this difficult time is that it is a beautiful time to really take refuge in the books of, you know, the heroes of the faith and the heroes that did so much in the foundation of our country and, you know, just the inspiring stories from around the world that are important to read when we're going through a time of difficulty. Yeah. Because they give us insight and they give us perspective. And I love when General MacArthur was, um, you know, he was commissioned to rebuild Japan at the end of World War II. And you have to remember that Japan had been on an imperialistic quest since the late 20s and early 30s. So Japan had literally, by the time World War II was over, they had been at war for, you know, over a decade and a half. And so MacArthur had loved the Laura Ingalls Wilder books as a kid. And so when he, um, you know, was working on the democratization of Japan after Japan surrendered, he brought in The Long Winter. And that was the book that he distributed all over Japan Mm -hmm. because he knew the power of that story of families who are suffering, you know, deprivation and extreme conditions and, and not losing their, you know, not losing their courage and not giving up and, you know, persevering. And he knew that that book would speak to the Japanese at that time in their history. And, and it did indeed do that in a powerful way. Yeah. Yeah. And I think they ended up uh, as a result uh, translating the other books into Japanese, and uh, there was quite a revival of uh, yes. you know they were it was big. <laughs> Those books were big in yes. Japan. I remember reading that uh, story not too long ago. I was reading uh, one of the Laura Ingalls Wilder biographies and them talking about that particular thing. Um, yeah, yeah. And so often, you know, you were talking earlier about the whole. Um, you know, textbooks versus a living books approach. And so often in textbooks, this is presented to us as this is fact. This is exactly the way things happened. And Mm -hmm. I think we can see even today with everything that's that we're going through right now, because we're obviously living through a historical event. There's so many interpretations of fact. And Mm -hmm. uh, it's interesting to see this is nothing new. (laughs) Yeah. It's not new that there are multiple interpretations of what's going on. And so yes, absolutely. when we're reading these textbooks, we're getting one side of the story. And I think one of the beautiful things about, um, and it's presented as fact, but one of the beautiful things about reading these living books is we're getting the human side of the story. Yes. And we realize that it's much more multifaceted than just a list of facts, which may or may not be, um, you know, it's never just facts there's always something more to it. Yes, absolutely. And that's, that's the beauty of, of knowing our history. Um, I think it was 
Cicero that, yeah, it was Cicero that said, to not know your history is to remain always a child. And that's why, you know, one of the reasons the study of history is so important. Um, Michael Crichton, who wrote Jurassic Park and Andromeda Strain and all of those, he also stated similarly that um, if you don't know history, you are like a leaf that doesn't know it's part of a tree. And so, you know, the, the study of history is not important just because you need to know what happened. It's really important for preventing what may happen in the future. You know, if we don't mm -hmm. know our history, we are destined to repeat it. So um, that's, you know, I, I think that should be important to all of us as Americans and as parents, that that is one of our, you know, goals as parents to make sure that we do impart that legacy to our children and that understanding. So, yeah. 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 And knowing where we came from. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. 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 I love that. There's um, a quote in Grapes of Wrath um, that, uh, that when the family's having to leave, um, Oklahoma because of the Dust Bowl and they're just destitute, but their roots are there. Their, their family is buried there. Their, their history is there. Their heritage is there. And, um, you know, one of the family just asks the question, how, how will we know who we are? How will we know who we are? You know, because, you know, they're, they're, they're leaving their history. And so that's why, you know, our history is important because it does tell us who we are. Yeah. Where yeah. we came from. Well, Rhea, uh, tell everybody where they can find you and beautiful feet books online. Well, our website is just um, www.bfbooks.com. And um, you can also email me at Rhea at bfbooks.com. And I also blog on children's literature at Rhea Berg on, on WordPress. So, yeah. Yeah. And we will put links to all of that okay. into the show notes and to your Instagram as well. So people can oh, follow you, you over there. I know you're always doing things over there as well. So, well, um, yeah. thank you so much for coming on here and, and talking to me today about teaching history through literature and why it's important. Um, I think absolutely wonderful to have you on. Well, thank you, Pam. It was a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. And there you have it. Now, if you would like links to any of the books and resources that Rhea and I chatted about today, including the downloads for this episode of the podcast, which includes a full transcript, you can find those on the show notes for this episode. Those are at pambarnhill.com forward slash YMB75. You can also take the time to leave either one of us a comment over there, or we even have little instructions on how to leave a rating or review you for the Your Morning Basket podcast to help us get the word out to more listeners. And we always love it when you do that. Thank you so much. So next week on the podcast, I'm going to be joined by Rebecca Zip from ahumbleplace.com. And Rebecca and I are going to be chatting about the value of morning time 
in a kindergarten education. We know people are going back to school, and some of us have kindergartners this year, not me, but others, and we want to talk about how we can use morning time and how morning time benefits our kindergartner. So it's going to be a fun conversation, and I can't wait to see you here. Until then, keep seeking truth, goodness, and beauty in your homeschool day. Mm -hmm.